So welcome to another show. Uh, today we have Nikos Patadakis, who is a consulting philosopher. So welcome to today's show, Nikos. Great to be here, my friend. Fantastic. So why philosophy? It For me, philosophy has a very um, number one nuanced audience, but also for the majority of people, they see it as something that doesn't really exist. It, it's not a real thing. Can you explain, number one, why you got into philosophy and two, actually how real philosophy is? Yeah, sure. Well, I think the thing to keep in mind is that our views of philosophy as being, I don't know, not a real thing or nuance um, in a pejorative sense, those are d deliberate in a way. So you, it's deliberate in the sense that you can't keep dysfunction going in your culture and in yourself without keeping philosophy at bay. So part of the reason why we have distorted notions of philosophy is, is that our education system has to protect us from it in order for the pattern of insanity to kind of perpetuate itself. Because the thing is that you and I could go through life and never become quantum physicists. We could go through life and never become neurosurgeons or plumbers or bakers. But each one of those people has to be a philosopher. They can't escape philosophy. Nobody can escape philosophy because philosophy is how we do things. And we all have a particular way of doing things. Uh, for anything we care about, we want to do that thing well. If we care even a little bit about ourselves, we want excellence in our life. We want true happiness and peace. And the wisdom traditions are, are what teach us how to achieve that. We don't get it from our science. We don't get it from any particular discipline. So a physicist has a philosophy of science that guides their inquiry. And a plumber has a philosophy of how to do the job. They also have a philosophy of friendship, a philosophy of parenting. They have political ideas. Those are philosophical ideas. So when we argue politics, we are in the midst of philosophical debate. And so you can't escape it. And for me, I had the same realization um, that uh, this kind of di division uh, from philosophy, because I went through my whole life never hearing the word. And then when I went to college and I thought, well, I want to take a philosophy course. And I realized, my goodness, they just keep this from us but this is about our whole life. And so that's how I became a philosopher is I just wanted to, I signed up for a course, didn't know it was going to go anywhere. I didn't plan on majoring. I was going to go into politics, maybe become a lawyer and a politician or something. And then uh, I discovered philosophy and realized, well, this is it. This is what, I, what I'm here to do. Yeah, I don't know who, who mentioned the quote. Um, I think it might have been Diogenes that says the most underappreciated and underpaid people are philosophers and dogs. <laughs> that's definitely yeah. true um but yeah i mean in regards to philosophy though so for me like even as simple as the socratic method of asking questions to to get answers is is fundamental in people's lives but philosophy is such a broad subject that if we look at existentialism or epicureanism um stoicism um aristotelianism etc 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 which of those resonates with you the most as a philosopher Mm. Yeah, it's a broad subject because we can't step out of it. Again, that gets back to the earlier point. You can't step out of it. And so it's everything. It's everything in your life. And it's whatever you do, you're going you're gonna to be involved in it, but generally without being informed by these great spiritual geniuses. So it would be as if you were trying to run around reinventing music from ground zero. You, you don't want to hear anything about notes or scales, or you don't want to play a piano because it was invented by a dead white guy. Forget that. I'll invent my own instruments. You can't really function that way because you're always going to be taking anyway. You may as well find out where you're taking. So, so much of psychology and self-help and so on is derived from philosophy. Ultimately, that's where it comes from. And we're, we're being moved by philosophical ideas. 
Now, in terms of my own influences, I, I think it's important for people to recognize that, that you can find some tradition of love wisdom or philosophy that can inform your life. And it's important to find something that you really feel drawn to. And hopefully it's a venerable tradition with living teachers, because that's really the only way you're going to get far. But we can't study spiritual geniuses usually without guidance, because they wrote things that are above our heads by default. Otherwise, we'd already know it. And so wisdom is not something that we just, oh, I read a book and I'm wise. We need a holistic practice. But in terms of my influences, I, that's not all my influences had that. That's why I have multiple influences, because I'm Greek, and I'm strongly connected to my Greek lineage, very much so. Plato, Heraclitus, Socrates, Epicurus, these are really important influences in my life. But they don't have much to say about how you make it real. They were dedicated to making it real, making wisdom, love, and beauty a reality, making excellence a reality. But there's not a whole lot of guidance. So the tradition, I think, that is most comprehensive as far as offering us a holistic way to practice is really the Buddhist philosophical traditions. Now, that's not to say they're superior. It's to say that many traditions, we don't have a record of how to make the wisdom real in our life. Whereas with the Buddhist traditions, they've elaborated so many practices across both time and culture, which is also important. Because, for instance, there are many indigenous traditions that are absolutely remarkable for the level of wisdom and the kind of beings that they can produce, but those are usually culturally exclusive unless you really get special permission or you have a special connection, whereas many other philosophical traditions we're familiar with are shared more openly. So you don't have to be Tibetan to study Tibetan Buddhism, and there's no fear of cultural appropriation. You can learn those practices. You can approach teachers who may be Caucasian at this point because they studied with Tibetan masters. So I do find that to be a strong influence, as well as Taoism. Uh, I study and read about indigenous traditions, but only to re really appreciate the common ground, to feel a sense of kinship. I would never claim to teach them or fully understand them. Uh, formally, I'm really drawing from the Greek tradition, the uh, Indo-Tibetan tradition, the Sino-Japanese tradition, Taoism, Buddhism, those kinds of uh, philosophies. Because yeah, I, I listen to a lot of uh, Alan Watts, and um, he talks a lot about Taoism and, well, Taoism, again, those words are synonymous in, in some respects. Wu Wei, Zen Buddhism, there's a lot of parables as well that really sort of resonate um, with me. Do you, are you familiar with Alan Watts? And if so, what, oh, do, you, he's, what do you think of well, great. works? He's great. Yeah, I mean, he says things that are not, you know, he's not a, a scholar of those traditions. And it's always difficult when you're operating outside of that because scholarship keeps moving forward. Um, so, but he's really great at getting some super interesting philosophical ideas. And and yes, he's he's inspired by these traditions and he often does know a good bit about them, but then he often says things that are not quite accurate, but that doesn't matter. I think um, if you are drawn to those traditions, you go and study them, you know? So Alan Watts is not sufficient either for us to have the kind of life that we are uh, kind of um, our potential, right? There's some kind of amazing potential in each of us you really have to go and study those traditions in depth alan is a great inspiration and my work in some ways is about that too just really looking at the common ground and then inviting people to find maybe within their own tradition like if you grew up christian you might have rejected it or you might have grown disconnected but there are really beautiful things about christian 
philosophy and, and a Christian way of life or a Jewish way of life or a Hindu way of life. Every tradition has the capacity to help us realize our potential. But we do have to find, I think, one that we can dig in and, and get real depth and real training. So, so why then you mentioned practical um, sort of philosophy as opposed to just, as you said, these historic philosophies that maybe don't give us any practical advice in some respects. So why um, uh, Taoism or, or, or Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, whatever it is, as opposed to something like Stoicism, which for me is very practical in, in its um, fundamental way of thinking um, mm. and obviously trying to control emotions and, and, and work on logic. Why, why is it that you prefer the Eastern philosophy in in some respects as opposed to the, the Western uh, philosophy? Well, let me be absolutely clear. I love the Stoics. Epictetus definitely reads like a Zen master in a lot of ways, but Stoicism is anemic compared to the Buddhist traditions. They do not have the kinds of practices, the comprehensive and holistic philosophy that the um, Indo-Tibetan traditions develop. They just don't have it. Now, they do have, the, one of the reasons why it feels so good and it feels so effective is, as I mentioned, the forms of psychotherapy that we have that are the most predominant and well-regarded, they all have roots in the wisdom traditions. And what happened with Stoicism is uh, Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis, where Aaron Beck was a, a Freudian-trained psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalyst, I'm sorry. And he felt that he just wasn't getting enough healing for his patients. And he remembered taking a course in stoicism and he thought, why don't I apply this? Albert Ellis also applied. Uh, and this is how we got CBT. Now, there was a recent meta-analysis done on 55,000 studies on the effectiveness of psychotherapy, trying to answer this question. How, how can we explain it? We have all these different varieties of psychotherapy and people get better it in all the different ones you know you can go to a psychodynamic therapist and get better you can go to a cbt therapist and get better so they wanted to find out what 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 explains the majority of the variants and they found two factors that explained by far the most variants so these two things cognitive flexibility and mindfulness the stoic tradition gives you both of those in relative degree Definitely cognitive flexibility, because it's one of the first things you're doing. And that's what Marcus Aurelius is, is writing to himself, right? He's, he's, he's working on his own mind saying, don't think this way. That's a weak way to think. This is the strong way. And they were holding up Socrates as a model, right? They really looked at him as their Buddha. And they felt that he was really realized. But all they had to work with was that kind of thing. Change your thoughts, get rid of unskillful thoughts, and pay more attention to your life. So that's the mindfulness part. Now, when you compare the way the Buddhist and Taoist philosophical traditions work on those two, just those two dimensions alone, it is way beyond what you get in Stoicism. The Stoics don't teach you what it means to work with your mind. They don't teach you really what the nature of mind is and how to cultivate awareness in the kinds of ways that you find in the Indo-Tibetan traditions. So it's just, there's no comparison. And as far as Epictetus and a real Zen master, I really would put my faith into a real Zen master because they would have gone places that Epictetus probably didn't go, or if he did, couldn't really help you get there as effectively. That's just a, a consequence of this cultural development and the way the Indo-Tibetan tradition, I mean, look, Mother India had all these seers from ancient times just looking at the mind, 
they were psychonauts. And those psychonauts just continued through Buddha all the way into the Tibetan tradition. These people are incredible, the things that they could do with their mind. And that's why if you look today, we don't put uh, Stoic philosophers into brain scanners. We put Buddhist philosophers into brain scanners. And that's where we say, wow, their brains are doing things that we just don't see other people doing. And that really says a lot, their epigenetic profile also. So the expression of their genes changes based on these practices. They, and they I don't can think heat themselves can up, that. can't they? Like when I'm it's sorry? freezing cold, they heat themselves up just with meditation mm. and things like that. And uh, it's incredible. You mentioned um, some of the Zen sort of masters. I know I've been listening to actually recently, funnily enough, some of the, the Zen sort of parables and stories and like people like Gudo, for example, sort of um, providing insight to um, sort of the students, let's say, but not out of telling them, but out of showing them through experience and making them learn the lessons um, through their own means, if, if that makes sense, rather than you must do this, you must do that. Do you think then, you mentioned the word holistic, do you think that Zen Buddhism then, or well, not necessarily um, Zen, but Buddhism in, in, in general, yeah. is more comprehensive in its ethical standpoint, but also does it include maybe any metaphysical um, a metaphysical stance on it or epistemology, for example, something more complex? Because stoicism is, as you said, mainly about how you think as opposed to, I don't know, is there something more comprehensive or, as you said, holistic that Buddhism offers that stoicism doesn't? And I mean specific as opposed to more general. Yeah, so, well, I, I say a couple of things there. One is that there is, in every philosophical tradition, there is both indoctrination and education. And we get freaked out by the word indoctrination, but indoctrinare, the doctrine is the teaching. And the idea is that some teachings have to go in. And human beings can't function without indoctrination. The question is whether or not it's going to be good. So you couldn't get English out of you without putting English into you. <laughs> So people had to put English into you. Otherwise, you'd have spoken a different language. So the the education part is leading out your, your inherent capacity to, for speech. But that required the indoctrination of putting English words and English uh, um, concepts in there. So philosophy works that way, too. So the, the, the spiritual common law that you're talking about, these are that's what I, how I translate the word koan, these uh, in, in encounters between teacher and student. It's just similar to how we have common law in, in our political life, where no one passes the law, but but judicial wisdom is so profound that we recognize it as, wow, that's really, that's how we should live. So the spiritual common law is like that. And the, the, the context of that spiritual law is already the indoctrination that the student got. And now the teacher is saying, okay, we got to pull, pull this out of you. As far as epistemology, you can't have philosophy without saying, how we know the world and how we know ourselves. And so we can't function without epistemology. It's a fancy word that just means the study of knowledge. And philosophy is about how we know ourselves and our world. And yes, uh, so in, in terms of specifics, the same kinds of things that you see Marcus Aurelius doing, working with slogans and what you, you could call crystallizations of wisdom. He's writing these things down to himself as a way to train his mind. In the Indo-Tibetan tradition, this is called Lojong. And you go through a comprehensive curriculum of learning how to get rid of unhelpful beliefs, 
indoctrinate yourself with the good beliefs and be educated to be pull out what that really would mean as a full body. And as far as the ethics, okay, it's 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 sensitive because in the dominant culture, we have a confusion. We have, instead of understanding ethics as multi-layered, we have developed arguments about different three different kinds of ethics primarily. One is ethics is about the consequences of your actions. And one, a second one is that it is about the intentions of your actions. And a third is about, it's about your character or your virtue. So we, we say that utilitarianism is a consequentialist ethics because it's concerned about the greatest good for the greatest number. What are the consequences? Doesn't matter what your intention. Kantian ethics is deontological. It's about having the right intention and doing your duty then in accord with what reason demands. So you have to just have the right intention. And then you have virtue ethics from Aristotle. Okay, but those are just three aspects of ethics. It's, you know, it's a weird argument to have. Like, is Aristotle right or is Kant right? Well, they're both right. You, can, you can't ignore intention. That's ridiculous. And you can't ignore consequences. That's ridiculous. And uh, Buddhist ethics does have, I think, that more robust view because they are trying to cultivate virtue, cultivate right intention. They see, they agree with Kant. Kant and Buddha agree really strongly that intention is intention is karma in, in the Buddhist tradition. So they, so Kant and Buddha would see eye to eye completely, really. So would Socrates agree with them. And then they also have a view about the consequences of our actions. So ethically, yes, it's it's very holistic, I think. But but other traditions could access that. There's no that's that's not like exclusive. There are probably many indigenous cultures who would see it that way too. So koan wise then, what's your favorite? Have you got a favorite or or not? One that well, you the koans... think like a value that or a lesson that you think is is really important for people to know, or something that's just described in a way that hits a bit different. Yeah, koan are again that this, the word is koan in Japanese and uh, kongon in uh, Chinese, and it literally means a public case. That's why I translate it as spiritual common law. And the thing about them is that you can't just, it's unlike ordinary common law where you just study it and then you know the precedent and you say, okay, so-and-so ruled as follows and this is the common law. With spiritual common law, you have to sit with it maybe for years, one question. So the famous, one of the famous um, collections of spiritual common law is, is called the Mumon Khan in Japanese. And that's by women. Um, it's the no gate gate, literally. The no gate, the gateless gate. That's a really beautiful thing to think about, first of all. Where is the gate to reality? So if, if I'm here and I'm on the side of ignorance, how do I get to wisdom? And the very name of this collection of spiritual common law is to say, well, there is a gateless gate you have to walk through. If it, you can't go someplace and find the gate to reality, it's right here. And Wuman, he says that it took him six years to resolve the first case, which is, does the dog have Buddha nature? And the famous answer is no. But we also have to remember that that same teacher, when asked by another student in another context, said yes. And for those who are wondering, what, what's that have to do with it? Well, in Buddhist philosophy, there's this idea that every being has Buddha nature. If you were a Christian, it would be kind of like if you went to the Pope, and then this Pope was considered a very spiritual, connected to God Pope, and you said, Your, Your Holiness, uh, do human beings really have a soul? And the Pope said, no. And you that would like freak you out, right? 
And the, so the idea of <laughs> of Joshu saying that the dogs don't have Buddha nature is kind of wait. Why did the student ask? Well, we must have we must imagine they were already deeply engaged in their practice. And so in order to sit with that koan, that's the case of spiritual common law, a person might need six years of just sitting there thinking, no, no. And really, that's what you focus on, that word, mu, mu in Japanese, no, 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 no. And you arrive at a breakthrough. And so there isn't, the thing about the koan then, there's two things I think that are important. One is you, you can't just read it. It is a practice. And so therefore you need those trainings, that comprehensive training on how to use your mind to get your mind to the place where it can see the answer. The second thing is that the koan, the spiritual common law is a whole curriculum. That's that comprehensive thing. You might go through 500 of those cases over the course of 10, 15, 20 years. And what those cases do is they take you from the first breakthrough, which is easy actually in a way, which is to see that things are not really two. Oh, things are not two. I, we are in the world and you and I see each other just automatically as you're over there, I'm over here. And people are hearing my voice like I'm speaking and they're listening. But my voice is appearing in their mind actually. So they, there isn't a real duality. And intellectually we can say, oh yes, that's right, I get it, I get it. But not, not the spiritual insight. We have to see it. When we see that, oh my God, things are not two, but we can get stuck there because that is not full understanding. The whole rest of the Kohan curriculum is to get you out of that place of a first glimpse at wisdom to a full-bodied, compassionate and wisdom-oriented wholeness where wisdom, love, and beauty are completely one thing. And so we can lose our compassion. And you can see this in some of the kind of non-dual teachers who are on YouTube channels where it's like, there's no real robust sense of compassion in a lot of these people. Um, so the Buddhist view is you really have to have wholeheartedness. And that takes time so that you move from seeing things are not two and also seeing that they are not one. That's a crazy inconceivability that you and I are the same thing, but I am not you and you are not me at the same time. And intellectually we can say it, but the fact that it takes you years and maybe a thousand spiritual common law cases in, in some schools, sometimes other schools actually it's one for a repeated, you just go back again to the same question. But the point is it's not so easy. And so I can't like say, oh, I have a favorite one. They are about cultivation. You have to, and they will matter to the person depending on how the development is going. Some case might be really hard for a person and another case might be easy. That's where that same case might be easy for a different person. You see what I mean? Okay. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it says, and I think the beauty of it, as you said, it's, and well, ne not necessarily just them, but over the course of, of, of the conversation so far, is it takes some, sometimes you a long time to actually realize what is going on with a question or um some sort of philosophy or even a statement um like the two i like actually the command i like is the one about the moon cannot be stolen and the 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 thief being disciplined um that there i think them them two really do resonate with me especially the moon being stolen one um <laughs> on the basis that it just shows that there's so much more than just materialism mm. 
And I think that's something that the world needs to understand, especially in the current climate with the Instagram culture and the keeping up with the Joneses, the better car, the better job, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And actually going down that that path can lead to a demise in um, goodness, as you said, within you, because you are doing things that not necessarily are good for human nature, but good to try and push yourself forward. And um, that along with hedonism, for example, is what has maybe got us to where we are. That things like OnlyFans and these sorts of things, is that really beneficial for society at large? And you'd, you'd probably say not. Um, you mentioned utilitarianism as well. That is, Those things definitely aren't best for everyone. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I like what you're saying. There too, we're going back to this primal thing of when you say that you discover that the world is not just materialism, you discover that by just sitting and looking at your own nature. That's what that's what Socrates was doing. He was looking at the nature of reality. That's what any teacher in the wisdom traditions, it doesn't matter, indigenous, uh, so-called civilized, they were all asking us to look at the nature of reality and you see for yourself that you are not merely a material thing. In in the Greek tradition, one of the things that I so love is how explicit they put it in the mysteries, which is die now, and when you die, you won't die. That is, die to the confusion that you're only material, because we just, it doesn't matter what we say, because we can say, oh, I believe in eternal soul or whatever, but if you don't verify it, I love that Buddha called his philosophy a come and see thing. It's a beautiful, actually, he goes beyond the dominant culture tradition because dominant culture philosophy feels that reason was the big move. We said, okay, you can't believe something because an authority told you. You can't believe it just because some holy book or some text says it. You have to think for yourself. You have to use reason. But then Buddha said, uh, no, that's not enough. Why? Because the person you're arguing with might be smarter than you, or maybe you just don't see that there's a hole in their argument. So therefore, reason is not enough. You have to also have a direct experience of reality. And so his criterion for, for knowledge is in some ways higher. But actually, I believe Socrates would agree with that criterion. I think that the Socratic criterion is not reason only. I just think he, we misunderstand Socrates. But anyway, it, to your isn't that, what point, Kant, isn't that what Kant essentially did, though, to sort of bring in rationalism and empiricism together to, as you said, have the experience, but also... Um, be able to think rationally as well? Or would you say that's... Well, Kant, Kant uh, the problem with Kant is that he he too doesn't... He leaves us cut off from reality. He tells us we can't know reality itself. And Buddha just disagrees with him on that point. So they agree on the ethical point. And they agree that, that, that reason and ethics are really unified. But they disagree about being able to experience reality directly. So Kant says, no, you're forever cut off and Buddha says, no, that's that's bad reasoning, because that would mean that there is something that we don't actually have a relationship with. There, there is some absolute that we can never know, and that doesn't make sense from the Buddhist uh, epistemological standpoint, because if everything is relative, then there's no absolute. And so I can directly know the relativity of reality. It's a subtle point, but yeah, Kant would, would be considered like, okay, you didn't quite get it far enough from the Buddhist standpoint. So, so from Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist standpoint, then, in terms of going to that next level, do they believe in a a a, a god or or universe that we can get into connection with, or or not? 
there the gods are not there are gods in buddhist uh, philosophy but they are inferior to enlightened beings so if uh, this is of course would be heresy in christian tradition but the idea well mystical christianity remember that if you read the gospel of thomas it's jesus says if you drink from my mouth that is if you really drink my words you will become as i am so that's like saying i can be like jesus which is like a, in some ways a little bit edgy but mystical christians believe that but anyway the view, though, is that the thing that are called gods in the Indian tradition, those beings are lesser than uh, Buddha, who's just a human who's enlightened. So the gods really, there's this beautiful story, actually, where um, there is this uh, student of Buddhas who develops a, a very, very powerful what's called samadhi. And I usually translate samadhi as the well-put-togetherness of mind. But it is like a kind of really um, clear, stable state of awareness and attention, very laser-like focused. And he's so, this is such a powerful state that he enters into another dimension of reality and he appears in a heaven. And there are all these gods there. And he says, oh, and he wants to basically ask them where the universe came from and where does it go when, it, when everything disappears. And the gods say, nobody here knows that, but there's another heaven. You could try asking them. So he goes to 13 heavens and he finally gets to Brahma. And uh, uh, well, Brahma's not there and the other gods are waiting for him. And, and he says, I, I heard there's a God here who can tell me where everything came from. And they say, oh yeah, Brahma, you know, wait, he'll come, don't worry. And so all these lights start flashing and Brahma appears and the guy says, hey, uh, Brahma, I'm curious about where everything really came from and where it goes. And Brahma says, do you know who I am? I am Brahma, the Supreme, the Great. And he goes all through this whole thing. And the guy says, yeah, I didn't ask you who you are. I asked you this question. And again, Brahma says, don't you know who I am, Pipsqueak? And uh, so then Brahma throws him out. But then when the guy leaves, Brahma goes and uh, and grabs him and he says, look, uh, I couldn't say anything in front of the other people because they really think I'm the, the tops. But the fact is, I don't know. However, your teacher, Buddha, does know. So go down and continue studying with him, and he'll tell you the thing that I actually don't know. So in the Buddhist view, uh, what's nice about it is that uh, sometimes if we are, say, Christian or we're monotheistic or we're religious in a certain way, we'll wonder why did God let such bad things happen to me? If he's all-powerful and all-good, why would he let evil be in the world? The view here is that God doesn't, he didn't make it. And whatever problems there are, they're up to us to fix. And we can fix them. We can see into them. So a Jewish mystical view would agree with that in some ways, too. So would a, a Christian one. Anyway, okay, that's that. I hope that answers your yeah, question. Yeah, so it there does, are, there it are gods, but the gods are not, they're not superior to Buddhas. So for, like, for the, the thing is, like that sounds very much like it's a polytheistic religion to some extent. Um, so for me, like I've had my own sort of thoughts on what I think um the the spiritual situation is let's say and i would say that it's a panentheism uh, panentheism so god is within the universe but also separate to it that would be my thought and okay. i would also use the argument of like teleological argument that we can see from structures that there must be some inherent design now coming back to your point about um um i don't know and buddha knows or how can God be bad if all these things happen? It's very much a case of what level of thinking you're at. Because at the end of the day, a vegan might say to me, you shouldn't eat meat because it's seen as bad. Um, you know, you're you're killing another um, animal and you're consuming it. 
And my argument to that is saying, well, actually, so you you're telling me that your ethics are higher than that of nature itself. Mm. Because for for a child, for example, they might feel upset that they weren't given a new bike for Christmas or being able to eat those sweets, but they're seeing it from that level. You see it from the parents' level. They see that actually for that child to grow up more developed, maybe they can't always have what they want. Maybe they need to mm. go through some pain and struggle to um, come to some sort of realisation. And actually, for me, that's what living on Earth is all about. It's that human journey. And we can't just you know, go through life without loss, have everyone has a million dollars and we're not having to sort of work to get our body into shape so that's what i would i would say i don't think that you know god is neither malevolent nor you know all powerful in respect of controlling everything you know i'm not deterministic mm. i do believe in well i am but i'm soft determinism where i believe that there is an element of free will because otherwise a heroin addict was born to take heroin and die of an overdose there has yeah. to be some level of choice there as well so what if we were to go beyond within Buddhism, for example, I know that that story sort of says, again, go back to Buddha, but I'd really want to hit that home. What is it that Buddha says that in that particular story, the God or gods can't answer? Is it that the answers are within us or is it a state of mental being? What is it exactly? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me, uh, I, I wanted to touch on some of what you said. One of the things about this, uh, ethics is context. So um, if we could just have a list of moral rules, uh, that might be great. But, but we don't really have a, a set that isn't going to run into eventual problems. And so in the case of what we eat now, you have to ask yourself about the context you're in because we're not separate from nature and so we've changed the context and i think actually there's there you can make an argument um i'm not a vegan but i i think you can a vegan makes an excellent argument that if people could be vegan see i'm not a vegan because it, it doesn't work for me in terms of health and i've always when i was a vegan for actually um about a decade and I always, even as a vegan, made that exception that you might have health problems. So, for instance, I met a woman one time who could not convert omega-3s into EPA and DHA. So that means that she could eat flax oil all day and she's still going to get sick. So she had to eat fish or have health problems. And I did a water fast for, uh, I was going to. back sorry about that oh can you hear me yeah we're back i don't oh there you are okay good so i don't know where i left off but the point is that uh, normally when i 
do a water only fast, um, I'm not hungry. And you forget about food. It's really very nice. You just forget. You don't have to cook. You don't have to worry about anything. And so, but on day 10, I started to get really hungry and I started to sit with it and ask, okay, is this a passing thing? And I kept asking, what is it that I'm hungry for? And I kept getting a clear signal that it was organ meat. And so I, uh, I, I went another two days. I went to 12 days. I was still hungry, still getting the same clear signal. And so then I said, okay, I'm not a vegan anymore. And when I started eating that organ meat, I, I, I had really some serious health issues. They just, and the doctors weren't sure. The doctors thought I might have cancer. They thought I might, there were all these different things. They're running tests. And um, I, I started to heal. So I think you can, though. I think a vegan can say, look, we've so altered the context of nature that I'm not saying that I'm superior to nature. I'm saying that nature needs more of us to eat less meat. And I, I do agree with that. I mean, I really do think it's important for us to ask what uh, what we've done to the world and what we're going to have to do to heal it. In terms of Buddha's answer about the nature of, of reality, he, he says, basically, it's a come and see thing. I can teach you. So it's kind of like this. We have this idea in a way that reality just is what it is, and we find out about it. And the Greek tradition, Socrates and Plato, agree with Buddha and agree with many traditions um, around the world that it's, it doesn't work that way. What you know depends on how you come to know it, and it depends on who you are as a knower. There are some things that you cannot know until you become the kind of person who could know them. And it's kind of as if reality is sitting like this big round peg on top of you as a square hole. And if you practice and practice and practice, suddenly you loosen up and you get a little bit round. You get a little circular and that peg just drops in. But there's also a way to think of it that the peg doesn't even exist yet until you do the practice. So it's like you're, you're co-creating all the time, but you somehow arrive at an insight that is universal nonetheless. It's a subtle, that's a subtle point. But so that's what Buddha would say is I can't say it to you. If I could say it to you, I would just write it on a fortune cookie and, and go around the country passing out fortune cookies. But, but it doesn't work. You have to do something. You have to put in the passionate effort to get yourself out of that squareness, release into that roundness that lets the insight in. So is that how you help? So going back to your title, the consulting philosopher, how do you use all of this knowledge experience and, and wisdom for want of a better word to help people to progress essentially yeah that's the thing nobody would say i want to do things on the basis of ignorance you know nobody running a company says let's do the most ignorant thing we can here but there is no wisdom-based leadership because no leaders are taught wisdom you go to school what's the class on wisdom it's certainly not the intro to philosophy that's not enough to make you wise so the wisdom traditions are the single greatest untapped cultural resource we have. And I say the greatest because, again, nobody would want to do anything deliberately on the basis of ignorance. And Socrates showed that even bright people and even successful people ultimately are operating on the basis of ignorance, and that has unintended consequences for them and their culture. And so we're in the same situation, whereas Socrates was saying, hey, I'm really worried about Athenian culture. We think it's so great. But if we keep operating on the basis actually of ignorance, pretending that we know what we're doing, the culture is going to collapse, and it did. Now we're looking at planetary collapse. We're looking at large-scale collapse potential, and so we have to get on the basis of wisdom. So what I do is I just work on, as I said, that common ground. There's a common ground. 
that a, a people across tradition. So if I work with, I've worked with materialistic atheists and fundamentalist Christians, and they both tell me, you know, I've never felt so comfortable. You know, I feel like we can sit at the same table because there is a common ground of wisdom that the atheist and the fundamentalist can both accept. And so by giving people the kind of, you could say it's a, it's a basic education that their soul wishes they could have gotten in college, but they don't. And uh, so I might work with people one-on-one -on -one or in groups or whole of organization is where I'm aiming right now to try to help whole organizations begin to operate on the basis of wisdom. And how, how exactly to do that? Is it trying to open their mind to a new perspective? Is it asking the right questions? Is it a fundamental step-by-step um, um, -step process? Is it looking at individuals and trying to work out where their shortfalls are? How exactly do you go about doing that? Well, the basic dangerous wisdom curriculum is an education that involves a kind of holistic approach. Of course, you have to meet each person where they're at, but, but when we're talking about a common ground, there are basic things like we, we are all using our mind, but we don't know what our mind is or actually how to use it. So there is a basic education about what, what is a blueprint of the mind in its encumbered and its liberated capacities and how do we use it? And how do we start bringing in that cognitive flexibility and awareness that the therapists are discovering kind of accidentally, but that the wisdom traditions have always taught comprehensively. So it really is just like a basic curriculum, almost as if it were, again, like a, a college course. The beginnings, you know, the, the basic wisdom, uh, basic dangerous wisdom curriculum is 12 weeks. And then people might go on to work with me for years after that. But the, the basic curriculum would be something that an individual group or organization would go through and ideally, then also it would involve, say, in the case of an organization or a group, a, a retreat situation where we can go deeper and we start to change, start to follow the path of real excellence that the wisdom traditions promise us. They're telling us, these traditions are telling us, look, you have an inheritance that belongs to you. It is an inheritance of wisdom, love, and beauty, creativity, resilience, real excellence and skill. And this is how you you get to it. So that's really all it is, is helping people on the path. And of course, you're right. Individuals are going to vary. People come to me for different reasons. Some people, they're really suffering. Other people think, you know, I'm doing pretty well, but I know that my life is not about me. I see the world's got a lot of problems and I want to upgrade my game because I know there must be a lot more I could give. So absolutely, I'm 100% on, on the side with the fact that things need to be bespoke. Everyone's different. We have different personality types. We have different ambitions. We have different history. We are where we are on, on the journey. But much like species of dogs, you deal with every dog breed differently. Some need more rigorous training. Some need more exercise. Some need the softer touch. But there is something that fundamentally you do with all dogs. So my question would then be, if there was one piece of advice from your experience, what would it be? for everyone who, who listens something that we can all take on board and apply to our lives regardless of where we are that's going to help us to have a clearer mind or or enjoy a, a better quality of life yes that's always tricky because of the holism but we, we can put a link in the show notes for or the, i have some free downloads on compassion compassion is where i begin everything that i teach if i i, I taught uh, writing i taught logic i taught philosophy of mind philosophy of psychology 
every course I taught was on the basis of compassion practice. And my students consistently were amazed that they weren't taught that when they were five years old. They couldn't believe how powerful, how simple. I would have uh, people from um, veterans, you know, on the GI Bill in the university system, you get people coming from from being um, in the wars that we were having, and they would have PTSD. And I had veterans come up to me and say, you know, I did everything the VA threw at me to try to heal. Nothing worked until I came here and took a logic class. You know, that's not what I expected. I had I took it because I had to, to fulfill a requirement. But with compassion as the basis, they begin to see that philosophy really can heal our lives, transform us, and put us on a good path. So we can put a link for that. And that's where I recommend people to start. There's a few downloads, one explaining what compassion is and how it differs from empathy. Another one explaining how the meditation goes. And there's just a three-minute meditation. That's all you start with. But if you do this three minutes every single day, you can't stay the same. You're going to change. We're changing anyway. And love wisdom is just, you know, wisdom, the wisdom traditions are about changing in the best possible direction. And that's uh, where I would say to begin. Fantastic. Yeah, I think compassion and um, well, empathy as well, obviously, but there is, as you said, a slight difference. But I think compassion and gratitude are two things that if everyone had, the world would be a much better place. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. If you were really experiencing those, and that's the, that's another reason why we don't have exposure to them, is because when we're really in rooted in wisdom, love, beauty, gratitude, appreciation, enjoyment, then we don't want a Ferrari anymore. We just don't want the things that the culture is trying to get to, to give us to say, this will make you feel better. This job, this title, this money. And the wisdom traditions say, look, you don't need any of that. And none of that will do it. <laughs> That's it's, that's why I, that's why I love the moon story. The uh, uh-huh. you can't steal the moon. It's exactly that. So for anyone who's heard it, it's um, and you know I'm I'm going to probably bastardize it, so I'm not going to sort of uh, tell my version. Go and find it. It's a it's a great story, and it will give you a, a whole new perspective. So uh, Nikos, you mentioned that people can find your um, um, your education pieces online. If they want to reach out to you directly, is that where they find you as well, or? Yeah, so dangerouswisdom.org, the link we'll have will just take people to, If we, I'll, I'll give you one for your show notes, and that will take people directly to the free meditations. And there are lots of other free resources. The podcast is a lot of free philosophical education. And uh, But yeah, you can reach me through dangerouswisdom.org. There's a contact page there too. So, Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, Nikos. It's been a pleasure. Uh, if you yeah, got any words before we uh, close off? That's it, my friends. Start practicing. You can't escape philosophy. If you love anything, you want the wisdom to take good care of it. So go to the wisdom traditions and start to enjoy your life more. Fantastic. Thanks again.